You're listening to episode 39 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the stories of Man Bat and Animal Man. Who's that? Animal Man! Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I'm about to get schooled in man-bat history by one of my favorite guests on this show, Professor Alan Middleton. Welcome back to the show yet again, Professor. It's man-bat mania time. (laughs) Yes, it is. Uh, How have you been? Very good, very good. How have your classes been this semester? Uh, Wrapping up, which is very good. By the time this is published, it will be in the middle of summer, and I'll be happy. Well, if you taught your students nothing else, I'm assuming that you taught them that The Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC (laughs) Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC universe. Have you been looking at my syllabuses? (laughs) The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And up until this point, we haven't had more than two or three stories about villains, most recently Poison Ivy, and before her the Floronic Man, and some of the Manhunters, Now we come to the story of the Man-Bat, who I tend to lump into the villain category. But maybe Professor Allen will have a different perspective on the character. So, what is your history with the Man-Bat? How and when did you discover him? I discovered Man-Bat in the hardcover collection Batman from the 30s to the 70s. And that included a reprint of his second story. And he also appeared in a lot of Man Bat, and see, there I go, in a lot of Batman families <laughs> from the mid to late 70s, which, by the way, would have been better if they'd been Man Bat family. And you covered some of those stories on one of Michael Bailey's podcasts, yes. right? Was that yep. on Views? We, yeah, we went through that hardcover on the last episode, I think I killed it, of <laughs> Bailey's Batman podcast. And it was actually during that episode that I realized just how influential that book was in terms of framing mm-hmm. my views of Batman and his cast. And it shows up here. To me, Man Bat is an important Batman character because he's in that book. <laughs> he's in that book the same number of times as Penguin is and Riddler is once. Which is more than Catwoman. Catwoman's not in it at all. Well, that's just sexism. Absolutely. So, you know, my somewhat skewed view of the importance of Man Bat and of the original Bat-Girl are all because I read that hardcover, I don't know, 177 times. And it's fascinating that you make that point because 
I'd never read that book. And to me, like, I started reading Batman comics in the early 90s, you know, right after the first Mm -hmm. movie. But, like, Mandat wasn't around for a lot of those books. And if he did show up, I kind of missed some of those stories. My first exposure to the character was actually the first episode of Batman, the animated series. Which is a great episode. It's a phenomenal episode, and I loved it. It, it, I mean, it it sold me on the cartoon, it sold me on the character, but I thought he was a made-up invention of the show Mm, for a little while. It wasn't until later, and eventually I went back and I saw his his first appearances during the Neil Adams, Frank Robin comics, and a Mm -hmm. few of the other ones later on. But because there was a gap where he wasn't, published a lot in the main books in the 90s when I was coming in meeting so many of these Batman villains, I I kind of think of him as almost a niche character. And it freaked me out when I was looking up his history. I was like, he had like a 10-issue run in Batman Family, like where he was was a major character. I was Mm -hmm. like, I I have no idea about this. (laughs) And actually, that's a good place to launch into the character's publication history. So for those of you listening, if you don't know, Man Bat flew onto the scene in 1970 <laughs> in the lead story of Detective Comics issue 400, written by Frank Robbins and drawn by Neil Adams, who some of you probably know from his work on The Adventures of Bob Hope. The Man Bat saga would continue in issues 402, 407, 416, and 429. After that, he made sporadic appearances in Batman and Brave and the Bold. In 1975, Manbat got his own self-titled series that lasted two issues. And I don't think we can blame this one on the DC implosion. <laughs> People just said nope, and it got what? canceled faster than that 80s show. In 1977, however, as I mentioned, Batman bounced back and began a 10-issue run in Batman Family, the anthology series. Specifically, those were in issues 11 through 20. In the last couple of years before the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Manbat had a handful of appearances in later issues of Batman and Detective, and two non-Batman-related adventures in DC Comics Presents issue 35 and in the Blue Devil Summer Fun Annual, which I finally read, by the way, just a few days ago, and that was fun. After the crisis, Manbat appeared in, of all places, Action Comics issue 600, where he fought a fevered Superman, <laughs> and then this issue of Secret Origins, published in 1989. And that's a little strange, I think, because after this issue, Manbat didn't appear in either of the main Batman books until 1996 or later. In 1995, he starred in a three-issue Elseworlds miniseries called Batman Manbat by Jamie Delano and with painted art by John Bolton. A year after that, he got an in-continuity three-issue series simply called Man Bat, written by Chuck Dixon. And in 2006, another miniseries, this one five issues, written by Bruce Jones. Man Bat, or rather his serum, also played a key role in Grant Morrison's first arc on Batman when Talia al Ghul injected members of the League of Assassins with the formula to create an army of ninja Man Bats. Which, whatever you may think of Grant Morrison's time on Batman... That was pretty freaking cool when it happened. <laughs> I, I, I remember that. I think it was his first issue when Batman sees them and like just his inner monologue, the narration captions. It's like, man bat. No, man bats plural. Ninja man bats. Men, 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 men <laughs> bat? Men bats. Could be men bat? Men bat. And then, and then he just says, alarming twist. <laughs> it's like, way to understate that. So. Well, now man bat recently made an appearance on the Big Bang Theory as well. Really? In March 2016 or so, somewhere around there, the discussion was, if Man-Bat disguised himself as Batman, would he be Man-Batman 
or Batman Bat? I know it's a tough call. That's it's a, a tough call. That's a thinker. <laughs> Uh, he is also, I know he's shown up in some of the new 52 books, but was there anything else other than, other than the Big Bang Theory that I might have omitted in my report? <laughs> I think you hit certainly the highlights. All right, good. Uh, listeners, we are going to take a short break to advertise Professor Allen's podcast, but when we come back, yes. the secret origin of a man bat. So don't go away. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory. When the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way. Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Well, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance With the stars up above in your eyes Fantabulous night to make romance Neat the cover of October skies You know the leaves on the trees are falling To the sound of the breezes that blow You know I'm trying to please to the calling Of your heartstrings that play soft and low You know the night's magic Seem to whisper and hush You know the song Secret Origins issue 39 is cover dated April 1989, but in actuality it came out on February 21st that year, so saith Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The book cost a deplorable $1.50 for 48 pages. Mark Wade edited the book, of course, and this issue's cover was drawn by Michael Kaluta and depicts the man-bat locked in combat with the other story in this book, Animal Man. Your thoughts on the cover, Professor? It's an interesting teaming of characters 
first off, there are obvious similarities between Animal Man and Man Bat, yet obvious differences as well. So I kind of liked almost that sense of humor mm-hmm. of teaming these two. It's not as obvious as Plastic Man and Elongated Man, mm-hmm. but it's in that same general area, right? Right. And in, in terms of the covers that have featured the characters interacting, I think that part of the cover works reasonably well. I'm not sure about the blue background color, and the moon just kind of looks like a spotlight. It's about the most boring moon I've ever seen. There's no craters. There's no. The moon has no character. Yeah. It's just a big white circle. But I like sort of the foreground, the, the interaction between the characters. Yeah, I was thinking that the background was part of it, and and you're right. Like this just barely constitutes a background at all, because you can infer that it's there in front of the moon. But it's really it's it's just one circular line that separates this from being no background at all. Yeah. Now looking at it here, the color, both of the logos of the characters and the Secret Origins logo itself all pop mm-hmm. with this sort of deep blue background color. So I can understand, I guess, from a composition standpoint, why that color works, but something with a little more gradient, a little more oomph oomph to the background, maybe. One building somewhere in the background. I I don't know. It it needs needs something else. One star, anything, anything. Something on the moon, like show like the actual surface. You can tell it's it's not all solid. White. Yeah, there's no craters. There's right. no shadow. There's nothing on the yeah, moon. Yeah, a cloud, something. Yeah, I, I would I right. would totally right. agree a with cloud, that. anything. Uh, I do like the way that they're interacting. I like the way that they seem to be kind of fighting. Manbat looks good. The thing is, like his body position, he's so compact that I'm losing the sense that he's somewhat even humanoid. It almost right. looks like just a big bat. Right, and I think you, you kind of you need more of his lower half, the somewhat humanoid bipedal fact of the character, and when you lose that, it just looks like Animal Man is being wrestled by a big bat, <laughs> or that the man bat is like dipping him, like they're, right. they've just been they're, tangoing. They're dancing. <laughs> they're dancing in the moonlight. <laughs> that would be a good story. <laughs> oh, now I want to play that song in this episode. <laughs> anyway, all right. Any other thoughts on the cover? No. All right. Well, then, are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of Manbat? Yes, I am. It's the secret origin of Manbat was written by. We're going with Jan Sternad. Yes, and if I think we can actually put it a little bit more nasally and go Sternad. <laughs> <laughs> With art by Kevin Nolan. <laughs> Hereafter to be referred to as the writer. <laughs> the, the, exactly. <laughs> this is a retelling of the first two Man Bat stories, as Ryan mentioned, Detective 400 and 402. Those were written by Frank Robbins. Man Bat, who views himself as less than human, is face-to-face with Batman, who is more than a man. I couldn't stand his incredulous stare, his refusal to comprehend what I had become. Batman recalls what brought them face-to-face, which is him getting into a fight at a museum with a band of black-clad baddies. He was rescued by someone, something. He had never seen such a realistic disguise. He learns that an exhibit of winged insectivores is being put together by a Dr. Kirk Langstrom, which is a name Batman remembers. As a boy, Langstrom became famous for becoming lost in a cave for weeks. Somehow he survived. And upon exiting, he just whispered one word, goodbye. 
fat man then, reminisces more, about meeting Langstrom when they were boys and how he had told outlandish stories of bat people living in the center of the earth. As a man, he became a scientist dedicated to bringing the great things about bats, like sonar for the blind, to humanity. And by the time-honored, albeit not FDA-approved method, of secretly experimenting on himself, (laughs) the experiment worked too well, turning Langstrom into Man-Bat. Bringing us back to the beginning of the issue, where he saved Batman, Langstrom has to find the antidote to keep his transformation from becoming permanent. Batman investigates further and meets Langstrom's fiancée, Francine. He pressures her into telling him what he needs to know via even more flashbacks. And Batman learns that Langstrom is indeed the Man-Bat. Batman and Francine track Man-Bat down to Biochem Limited, where they find him stealing a vial of chemicals. Batman fights with him, understanding that by stopping a simple robbery, he is condemning Langstrom to a living hell. During the conflict, the beaker breaks, destroying Langstrom's only hope of returning to normal. He sees Francine and, enraged, dives through a window and flies off on leather wings. Blaming himself appropriately for shattering Langstrom's hopes forever becoming human, Batman returns to the Batcave, wondering if he will ever encounter the elusive Man-Bat again. Way to work on leather wings into your snops. See, see. <laughs> Extra points for that one. Gold star. <laughs> Thoughts on the story? Uh, well, in terms of comparing it to the original, it gets most of the facts right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it hits the right beats. But it does lack, I think, a little bit of the heart of that original telling. And I'm wondering if that's because the narrative is kind of divided in this like in alternating points, we get some of the story from Batman's perspective, and we get some from right. Man Bats, and they're both in first person. Exactly. So there's a little bit of confusion. Okay, who is just when, when it switches? Because it kind of switches in mid scene. The structure yes. of this, like from the beginning, we get their sort of first encounter when Batman shows the shines the flashlight on Matt Bat and sees him, and we get the scene narrated by Man Bat in the captions. But then we also get Batman's thought balloons as he's responding to that. And then we follow Man Bat, or sorry, we follow Batman as he's thinking about the scene and then flashing back earlier after Man Bat left, like to when they first fought. So it's, we're introduced with Man Bat narrating a couple paragraphs and then we're in Batman's head and then it'll jump around. So structurally, it's a little weird and it's a little discombobulated and yet not hard to follow. Right. I mean, it's. Right. it's I, I don't want to like level that as a criticism because I don't think it no. hinders or, or harms my enjoyment of the story. I just kind of cocked my head to the side and like, why did Jan Strnad do that? <laughs> why did he take that approach? The part about them as kids knowing each other was not in the original. And it, it is the type of thing that does seem like more of a 90s idea to me, mm-hmm. where you try to add background to the characters and sometimes even sort of a cutesy sort of way, where there's something very specific in childhood that dictates their destiny. Yeah, and I was actually – I knew that that wasn't in the first couple of appearances, but I didn't know if that ever came up again. But it did seem like more of a recent retcon that they would have said, yeah, that these two, their destinies were intertwined, that Batman inspired Man-Bat, but Man-Bat also – Langstrom also somewhat unintentionally inspired Batman too. Um, so I'm just saying when this when Man Bat comes on Gotham, that's what they're <laughs> going to use. <right? laughs> when we get someone falling into the cave for weeks, we know it'll be Man Bat. <laughs> 
you know, I, I made a joke that season three was going to have Asriel become Batman before they actually introduced Batman. And within a couple weeks, close. within a couple weeks, they're like, yep, Asriel's going to be on the show. I'm like, do you, what? Oh, okay. I don't, anyway. So yeah, we, ha- so we have Langstrom. He falls into this cave. This is a new revelation that he tells these stories of these Batman living in the center of the earth that we never actually see. So is this just his imagination or was there something else to this? That's why I wasn't sure if this was part of an older story or not. Was there something of him being raised by humanoid bats? And the stories that he tells Bruce, so maybe that partially inspired Batman. And then later on, when Kirk and his fiance Francine, when they're working in their lab with a bat that they have kind of plugged its ears, so they say the bat is blind. Mm-hmm. And then the implication that that is the same bat that flies through right. Bruce Wayne's window that inspires him when he's when he says, "Yes, Father, I will become a bat." These are interesting ideas. But it is one of those things where I use a very harsh term, and I'm sure there's a better word than this, but this is when comics get a little bit incestuous, when they start kind of folding in on each other and everything is connected. And it's like, give the people a little bit of room to breathe. (laughs) But I also think there's something about, I mean, as you said, you know, Man Bat as a character was, probably still is, Mm -hmm. not viable as a solo character. And I think maybe part of this Secret Origins was maybe attempt at a reboot. Maybe. And so by laying in some of this extra stuff, like these adventures as a kid with the Bat Peoples, perhaps, you know, maybe that's in there as a breadcrumb that another writer could, if they chose to, pick up. Or, or even the interactions with the young Bruce Wayne. You know, maybe, again, that was putting in some potential story threads for the future. Because I, I, I do think part of Man Bat's problem is the stories that you can tell with him are pretty limited. Mm-hmm. I have always compared this character to Spider-Man's villain, the Lizard. And sure. I liked the Lizard more, actually, because his origin story was a little bit more detailed. He had more of a reason to experiment on himself. When he took the serum, he was trying to cure. He he was missing an arm. There was an, a sense of urgency and an immediacy to create his own transformation into this creature. Langstrom doesn't really have that. He doesn't need to turn into the man bat. It's sort of accidental. So, I think giving him a little bit more motivation, a little bit more of a of an obsession with this type of thing, by layering in that backstory with the right. caves. Maybe that would go to help him. Maybe that would, you know, better fuel his longevity as a protagonist in a story rather than as a foil or something else. Yeah. And Um, because I think, you know, you mentioned Man Bat as a villain, and I don't really see him that way. I see him as an antagonist, mm -hmm. which is something different. Right. I think he's potentially a great creation. Now, he may not be able to sustain long, ongoing adventures. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think, as we see here, and, and, and it is laid in in the original, he really gets to Batman. He gets under Batman's skin, or he pricks his conscience in some way. And I think he sort of represents some of the best aspects of that DC early 70s approach, mm-hmm. if, if, if you want to call it their Bronze Age mentality. Yeah. Because this is an updated storytelling you know, for DC. This is a little more nuanced, a little more mature than what you got in the Silver Age. He's not a sympathetic villain in the modern sense of taking a 100% evil person and <laughs> manipulating us to feel sorry for him, mm-hmm. right? which is a, an annoying trend the last couple right. of decades. Right. This is an antagonist who is not just someone that we readers can feel sorry for, 
but Batman feels sorry for him. And there's Batman, a- Batman does not feel sorry for many of his, uh, many of his villains antagonists. No, he, you're right. He, he does not have mixed feelings about the Joker. <laughs> exactly. He has mixed feelings about Man Bat. Yeah, and there is this. They build it into the story towards the end. There's this inherent sense of guilt that Batman acted too quickly, and Batman stopped Man Bat from being able to cure himself. And in the original stories, I don't think it was as overt. Batman was trying to cure him, but it was taking so long that the transformation was kind of overwhelming Kirk's human psychosis, his his human psyche, Mm -hmm. that he wasn't able to communicate, and then he wasn't able to understand what Batman was trying to do, and it just became impossible to cure him. But in this case, it's more of, yeah, he was going to cure himself, and Batman acted too quickly, too foolishly. He didn't know what he was doing, and and he prevented Man-Bat from curing himself. So they take, I think, a little bit more of an ambiguous, or a sense that it wasn't Batman's fault in the original stories in the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. And this one, they kind of make it, well, maybe it's partially his fault. Maybe, right. And maybe that guilt is why he feels bad for him. And then the other thing I like about Man-Bat in general is somewhat similar to a character we talked about way, way back I think episode 16, our, our first get-together on this show, Adam Strange, mm-hmm. is that you really can't have Man-Bat without Francine. That's a key element of his stories, of his character, right. in the same way that Adam Strange is Adam Strange because of Alana, mm-hmm. because of that, that tension in that relationship. But the problem is, in terms of Man-Bat, is that's also limiting, and that you know, a story always has to include her in some way, and there is only a limited number of uses in, in that sense, putting her in peril. Or in the third story, uh, she actually becomes woman bat mm-hmm. for a little while. Yeah. But adding that relationship just adds even more pathos. Well, I think one of the dangers you run is if you, if you make him a protagonist, if you gave him his own story – what is his story? What is he trying to do besides cure himself? And what are the obstacles right. of curing himself? And this is a problem with doing more movies about the Incredible Hulk or more TV shows or something is every day is every hour like the same adventure, the same plot. He's trying to cure himself right. and something stops him. Is there a way of giving him peace or a sense of contentment as the man or just resignation that he can't change and then he just has to find a way of living with this and do something else with his life yeah because i mean obviously you have the so dr jekyll and mr hyde comparison exactly yeah which is what the whole you know works on as well mm-hmm. but i don't remember a series of novels featuring dr jekyll and mr hyde because right. it's there's it's, one novel, really good beginning, middle, and end, mm-hmm. and and to some extent that's a little bit of Man Bat's problem. You can tell this 400, 402, and even into uh, 407, those original handful of stories, really good, and they to some extent are self-contained. Mm-hmm. But it's because it's comic books, right? You always have to go back and and mine. You know, no character can. If you have a popular or an interesting or a well-received character, you've got to bring them back, got to bring them back, got to bring them back. Mm-hmm. Another um, reboot that I, I, I think they tried, I covered this on a, a Quarterman podcast. Man Bat was the lead in a Showcase 94. And in that story, uh, the setup is he's down in Mexico, Central America, some Aztec, Inca sort of uh, civilization. And an expedition is sent to find him to study him 
And we learn that the expedition is actually funded by Francine, who just wants to wants an answer as to what's happened. And they find Manbat, but the uh, the punchline is that the members of the expedition agree to go back and tell Francine that he's dead. Hmm. And and to some extent, you know, Kirk Langstrom has been dead for years. You know that he is purely just Manbat, with again almost Hulk, you know, dumb Hulk mm-hmm. levels of of humanity left. And again, that could potentially, you know, have been an opportunity to reboot the character again. You sort of get the feeling that's okay. Well, let's eliminate Francine. Let's put him off in this jungle. Yeah, so Tarzan meets so and so. You know, you could sort of see, you know, again the the groundwork being laid in that story that nobody picked up on. But again, I think multiple times it seems like they've tried to reboot this character. But I just, I, you know, I don't know that he's an ongoing concern. I think I think the best that someone like me, a, a fan of this character, can hope for is that they regularly mine his character for miniseries mm-hmm. every you know maybe every three or four or five years, that you know someone comes in with a great pitch, right? And we can get well, it would have to be six issues now, but three or four or five issues of a miniseries. But I don't think as an ongoing and I, you know part of the problem is we said he doesn't really fit with the. He's not going to hang out with the Joker and with the Riddler. He doesn't see himself as a bat villain. No. He doesn't fit in villain-centric types of stories. Give him his own fake DC city somewhere mm-hmm. to protect or to, mm-hmm. to prowl or to do something in. But it's, I, th- I think it's a, tough, it's a tough code to break. Yeah, and it's – and again, going back to like what, what stories do you tell? You're right. Like he's not going to team up with the other villains because he's not a criminal other than you know, robbing biochem for this formula that could restore his humanity. Exactly. But he's not out for money. He's not out for revenge. He's not out because he's crazy. But he's also not out for justice or righteousness. He's not, right. he's not a crime fighter because he can be. I mean you could make the argument that he is inspired by Batman to use his new kind of powers and abilities – to make the world better, and he he could do something like that, but he doesn't have that you know fundamental you know part of his character built into his origin that he was a victim of crime, and he's he doesn't have the same obsession, the same quest. So, how long does that play out with him as the sort of hero? And I mean, you mentioned Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, which is always what I think of, and I love that story, and I love the classic story of the Wolfman, and that's why I like characters like Man Bat and the Lizard, right, right. but. So much of their story is that initial transformation, and we exactly. need to see that every time. So if you do bring him back, if the writers do go back to the well again, or if they do give him a new miniseries, is it just going to be a new version of his first story, a new version of like showing that right. initial transformation? How many times can you do that? And then do you keep him permanently as Manbat or do you make it a thing like the Wolfman or like the Hulk where he can change back and forth from time to time? But is there a trigger? Yeah, what's the story engine? Exactly. And, and, and what's his character arc? Yeah. He's here. Where can he go to? Mm-hmm. What are his goals? What are his objectives as a character? Right. And it, that's a hard answer, hard question to answer. It is. There's so much you can do with the mechanics of this character, with his appearance and his the sort of functionality of this man bat thing. It's very striking to look at. You want to play with this character, but yeah, what is the character? And does the character, does his personality, does Langstrom himself lend himself to continuous stories? Uh, I mentioned that sort of maybe attempted reboot with the Showcase 94, mm-hmm. 
the 2006 miniseries is, to some extent, another reboot. It's a five-issue by Bruce Jones. Mm -hmm. And it's a story that features Hush taking on Black Mask, the sort of who's going to control Gotham crime. And there's a, and they end up taking advantage of a very confused Kirk Langstrom. <laughs> and uh, there are grisly murders occurring around Gotham and, and so on. And his DNA puts him at the scene of all the crimes, including the murder of his own family. So they have to bring Francine back <laughs> only to kill her again. You know, Langstrom is he's sort of convinced that he's committed these murders, but Batman just doesn't believe it. So I think there's something maybe there in the Batman-Man-Bat relationship that can be mine. I thought that was a nice touch, sort of a, a callback, you know, to this. Yeah. That, you know, for some reason, Batman has a trust in Langstrom, it seems like. And, and that's a, a, a recurring motif. But again, can you do that for more than five issues every four or five years? And that trust is just... It's odd. It it can feel forced if it's not done well. Like it's not like a there before the grace of God go I type of right. thing. Like I don't imagine Batman doesn't look at Man Bat and be like, oh man, that could have been the way my life turned out. Like no, this is an extremely ex- extraordinary occasion that led him to physically transform into a bat. In prep for this, I read up a little bit, and someone referred to Man Bat as Bruce Wayne's greatest fear personified. But I think that's overstating it. I, you know, maybe he sees Langstrom's obsession with bats mm-hmm. and what it drove him to, but I, I think that's overstating it a little bit. But maybe there is a touch of that, maybe. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it might be more sympathy. And if you, and that's maybe we're laying in the fact that they knew each other as kids or maybe as teens or in college or something. Mm-hmm. If you lay in a little bit of backstory, that might make more sense. Right. Because Batman doesn't empathize with bats. He doesn't identify with bats. Bats are tools. So I don't see that. Like, maybe the loss of humanity and the loss of the human connection that the man-bat kind of brings about on himself because of his transformation. Maybe that could be part of Batman's fear, but... That- and that transformation, both of these, the original and the Secret Origin story, does talk about Langstrom's obsession with bats. Mm-hmm. In the original, it's simply scientific you know, knowledge. And, right. you know, look, sometimes college professors, when they specialize in something, they can go a little nuts, let's be honest. <laughs> We've all known people like that. <laughs> Other people, obviously. I see them at faculty meetings. Anyway, I don't think that's important, though, Ryan. So maybe the obsession driving to this end result, maybe, you know, Batman can identify with that a little bit. He can think of what he's lost, Mm -hmm. even relationships that he's lost. Mm -hmm. But we're reading way into that. The story doesn't tell us that. No. We're having to fill in those gaps. Right. I don't think that's what Jan Strad intended. Looking at the story a little bit more just before we go, what do you think of the art? I think fundamentally there's one problem, and that is, Kevin Nolan, you are no Neil Adams. I know, I was going to say the same thing. I read this and thought it was fine. Then I read the original. I have it in a a reprint. Yeah. And boy, is Neil Adams great. Yeah, he is. (laughs) In, In the early 70s, absolutely top of his game. And no one was going to touch him. And the art in in the Secret Origins issue is okay. Actually, it's good. It's moody. There are, like, really heavy shadows. Like, there are a few panels, like, 
on page two, the lower left corner, it's a close-up of Batman looking, and he's got like blood dribbling down his nose or his mm, lip or mm-hmm, something. Right. The use of shadow, like to me, that it, looks almost like a Tim Sale image. Mm, okay. And I see some instances of that. It's it's very stylized. It's dark. I like Nolan's Batman. I like it a lot. I would like to see more of this type of story. But but you're right. I was reading this, and then I went back and looked at. It. I was like. Boy, Neil Adams, phenomenal. But then I looked at another one. Uh, I just read this morning, Batman, I think it's issue 361, very early Jason Todd appearance, and it's by Don Newton. And that looks great, too. Don Newton's version of the Man Bat is phenomenal. The art in this is really good. I like it. I want to see more of Nolan drawing Batman. His Man Bat looks cool, but it's just going to be... I liked his Batcave, too. Oh yeah, I like yeah. I like the Batcave that that Nolan gives us yeah. here, but it's just it's suffering by comparison. He's yeah. no he's no Neil Adams, no Don Newton either. But yeah, other than that, I didn't I didn't really have a problem. Like I said, structure wise, giving the parallel narratives between the two guys, and both in first person, it was interesting. But like I said at the beginning, it wasn't hard to follow. Yeah, I mean, um, once he sort of figured out what was happening, mm-hmm. and he sort of had yeah. had to think a little bit about okay, when I'm getting the eye, right getting your mind into which character is that okay i've got it now i can follow it Mm -hmm. and connecting bruce wayne and kirk langstrom to kids like i thought that would bother me because it just seems like why you're forcing these threads these connections where they don't need to be that doesn't really inform their decisions but again the, the things didn't bother me I wasn't I wasn't upset you know, if Langstrom happens to accidentally blind or deafen the bat that flies through Bruce Wayne's window does that make the moment less special maybe less cosmic maybe less like destiny or fate and just sort of an accident or or maybe it just makes their fates together but I don't know I don't it doesn't really change my impression of that moment in Bruce's life so mm-hmm. I enjoyed the story what was your overall take did you like it I did I did. I mean, again, you're you're sort of dealing with a really good the bones of an original story, mm-hmm. retelling it, adding in a little bit more of modern stuff, taking out a few things, adding a few things. It did not change the core very much, uh, but retold it, as you said, in a pretty understandable way. And I just think at its core, it is a really dramatic story mm-hmm. as well. Well, you mentioned that you had been reading a lot of other Man Bat stories in preparation for this. Recommended readings for people who want to know more about this character, where would you think they should start? I would probably start with it, – it, it's, it's hard to find those originals, uh, 400, 402, and 407. They are reprinted. They're reprinted. They are available digitally. If you have oh, okay. Comixology or probably the DC digital app, they are available on that. I've got them in uh, – it was a one-shot, 1984 – all, all, all it does is reprint those three issues, mm-hmm. and I've had that for – came out in 1984. I probably got it out of con in 86 or 87 and uh, recommend that. Uh, I, I like the 2006 Man Bat miniseries as well, the one I mentioned, the, the Bruce Jones. I pick those up for a dollar each. <gasps> oh, that, that, that hurt me to pay that much for any comic, but that is not my style, but no. Uh, those are very good, and – like you said, I would, I would recommend all of Man Bat's appearances on the animated series, mm-hmm. especially on Leather Wings. But they're they're all pretty solid. Yeah. And in terms of discussion of those, would recommend the uh, the Arkham Sessions podcast, 
which goes through the animated series episode by episode. Yeah. And I remember a couple of the Man Bat episodes themselves. They were very interested. That's very cool. interesting. I would like to check out that Bruce Jones miniseries because I loved his work on the Hulk. His right. work on the Incredible Hulk. I really loved that book at the time. And so. and you can see there are obviously some similarities, mm-hmm. as we've said, between those characters. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say you have basically the same recommendations. His his appearances are kind of all over the place, so if you can find them, I can't think of all the time you can any find bad those bat, you know, some sometimes you can find those Batman family issues in a dollar bin, you know, and, and if you like the rest of the Bat family, which I do. That, that wouldn't be a bad place to <laughs> bad place to look uh, as well. Cool. Any final thoughts on Man Bat before we go, Professor? Man Bat Mania rules. <laughs> yes it what? does. What? No. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for being on another episode of Secret Origins Podcast. Where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? Well, mostly on the Secret Origins Podcast. <laughs> mostly? <That's>, uh, <laughs> uh, regularly? I was going to say, how way, many, too, way too much for some people's taste. How many more episodes do you think you're going to be on? <laughs> oh, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> you might as well just search for the Relatively Geeky Podcast then. Because that's where you'll find... Most of our content, we have shows that come out once a week-ish uh, under many different podcast names. Most of them are my solo shows. We've been teasing the Quarterbin podcast all about books I literally paid 25 cents or less for. And Shortbot Showcase, the show I do with my only child, Emily, who listeners of this podcast will know from the Zatanna and Zatara episode. Mm-hmm. And we talk about topics and concepts and comics and related media. And like I said, I did cover a Man Bat story on episode 68 of the Quarterbin podcast, so check it out. One more time, thank you very much for being on the show. Listeners, we're going to take another promotional break, and when you come back, the irredeemable Shag himself will help me cover the origin of Animal Man. Kalabak, Tassad, it is up. Man, if I'd known that, I would have made fun of him even more. <laughs> you still have a chance. <laughs> still recording. <laughs> there, there's, there's still after show clips. <laughs> there is. Yeah, absolutely. Kalabak, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Who's who? The definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. If I could talk to the animals, just imagine it chatting with a chimp and chimpanzee. Imagine talking to a tiger, chatting with a cheetah. What a neat achievement it would be if we could talk to the animals, learn all their languages, maybe take an animal degree. I'd study elephant and eagle, buffalo and beagle, 
alligator, guinea pig, and flea. I would converse in polar bear and python, and I would curse in fluent kangaroo. If people ask me, can you speak rhinoceros? I'd say, of coceros, can't you? If I conferred with the furry friends. We're back with the second part of this issue's creature double feature, talking about Animal Man. Animal Man! And my guest on this segment is a man who has been compared to all manner of vermin and lower beasts. <laughs> and that's just when he shows up on Stella's Batgirl, the Oracle podcast. Please welcome back to the show, the irredeemable Shag. It's a pleasure to be back, I think. <laughs> oh, of course, always. You know, no, I, I missed you so much. It's been so long since we talked. You know, I can't believe that you didn't want to be part of any of the Justice League International origin stories. Yeah, you know, considering I have a podcast called Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, I really had no interest in discussing three incredibly critical issues where, you know, the origins of those characters are covered. No interest whatsoever. Go figure. Yeah. Sure glad other people got a chance to do that. Although I enjoyed everyone's commentary. I really did. There were wonderful episodes to listen to, even Frank's bit. So what brings you back this time? Why? See, you stole that. I was going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Because I love the character. I love the character of Animal Man. In fact, I'm sorry. I don't love Animal Man. I love Buddy. I love Buddy Baker. He is a fantastic character. He captured my imagination back, oof, I guess, what, 89-ish or whatever, when Justice League Europe first came out. I don't know if you ever read the Justice Leagues back then. Oh, no, you weren't reading any of this crap. That's right. You were off being darkity dark dark with your mohawk. But um, My Generation was... X comics, thank you. <laughs> so I decided to become a Justice League fan when Justice League Europe came out. Because I had heard they were going to be, like, not the funny team. They were going to be more serious and have more adventurous type stories. So I picked up Justice League Europe number one. And, you know, this is, you know, Giffen and Dimitaeus writing. Bart Sears art. So it looks amazing, right? So I'm like, this is great. And I'm like, this Animal Man guy looks so cool. He's got a leather jacket. So I went out and found the current issue of Animal Man on the shelf at that point, which was Animal Man number nine. And I was like, this is fantastic. Oh, my gosh. It's got a Brian Ballin cover. The inside's by this guy I've never heard of named Tom Grummet. I love this comic book. It's amazing. Then the next month, Secret Origins, number 39. I look at that. And I read this and said, WTF? What is going on? And <laughs> Animal Man then proceeded to blow my mind over the course of uh, the first 26 issues, which we'll talk about later. And I stayed with the book for a long time and have always been an Animal fan. Animal Man. That's a lot harder to say than I would think. Animal Man fan. Animal Man! And uh, he's near and dear to my heart. I love Buddy Baker. As a married guy myself with children, I can't help but relate to the guy. I think that's the best part about him is the relatability. And I I think we can talk about that later when we talk about some of the the creative runs that the character has had and why creators make certain decisions with the character. As for me, 20 years after you discovered him is probably when I I really did. Wow. Yeah, I I think I was digging on Grant Morrison's Batman run when I just decided to kind of binge on more of his stuff. And I looked at Seven Soldiers of Victory. I looked at his Doom Patrol. I picked up Animal Man, of course. I I think I stopped short of The Invisibles. Still never read The Invisibles. Oddly enough, neither have I. (laughs) But I just, I love... Somewhere, somewhere Michael Leyland is like, Why? But yeah, Animal Man, I just it, right from the beginning, right from Jump, I loved the, the hook on the character, how sort of metatextual and different it was from any other story I'd ever read. The art at first by this Chaz Trog guy was great. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, Involuntary noise there, sorry. 
Not a fan of those early? We're going to talk about artists at the end, I think. All right, well, we will. But you did mention issue nine, which had the Tom Grummet guest pencils. That was a great issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I actually, once I went back and reread that recently, I sent a message to Diablo Frank, and I was like, dude, I forgot to mention when we talked about Martian Manhunter, Tom Grummet drew a badass Martian Manhunter in that story. Yes, he did. Well, that and it's such a fun cover. You know, again, Brian Ball and cover. Mm-hmm. It's Martian Manhunter just filling the entire doorframe of Buddy's house, and two, like, maintenance guys coming in with all this high tech, and Buddy's like, what? What are they doing to my house? It's just a fun issue. Alright guys, looking at Animal Man's publication history, the character now known as Animal Man debuted in Strange Adventures issue 180, cover dated September 1965. Created by writer Dave Wood and artist Carmine Infantino, the character had no superhero codename or costume for his first two appearances. He was simply dubbed the man with animal powers and wore civilian clothes. It was in his and his name was Buddy, not Buddy Baker. It was just Buddy. It wasn't until uh, Jerry Conway, I believe it was, it gave him the last name of Baker. I didn't know that. And of course, Jerry's going to give him an alliterative last name. Yeah, it was just in his third appearance, Strange Adventures 190, that Buddy received his classic orange costume with a big blue A on it. And that probably inspired his first nickname, which was just A-Man. It wasn't until his fourth appearance in Strange Adventures 195, published more than a year after his debut, that Buddy finally became known as... Animal Man! (laughs) It's never going to get old for me. People at home probably hate their earbuds at this moment. (laughs) After that, he had one more Strange Adventures appearance, this one in issue 201, published in 1967. After just five adventures, Animal Man disappeared for nearly 13 years. In 1980, Jerry Conway brought him back for a two-issue stint in Wonder Woman issues 267 and 268. His return didn't exactly take the world by storm, though. It would be another four years before anyone saw Animal Man again, and when he did come back, it was part of a group unfortunately named the Forgotten Heroes. They were great! What are you talking about? I'm just saying, that's a tough name to live up to. Or easy? I mean... No, nah, it's, it's better than Legends of Tomorrow. It's, it's perfect. You, you pick six, or what, six, seven nobodies, and you give them a name like that. It's brilliant. All right. Jeez, you hate every. You suck the joy out of everything. I'm just saying, I'm the one who's got to cover Cave Carson down the road. Color me jealous, okay? <laughs> That's awesome. Animal Man, as well as the Silver Age Hasbins, Rip Hunter, Cave Carson, Dave Dorrance, Dolphin, Congorilla, and Rick Flag, several of whom will have secret origins told in this series. And I think you mispronounced it. They weren't uh, no names, they were gorgeous, beautiful, amazing heroes, is what you meant to say. <laughs> Just mispronounced it. They teamed up with Superman in Action Comics 552 and 553, and again in DC Comics Presents 77 and 78. Animal Man had one other pre-crisis appearance in Red Tornado issue 3, and then he showed up in the final two issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Two years after the crisis, Grant Morrison realized what Animal Man desperately needed to strike a chord with the audience was a leather jacket, as Shag has already (laughs) mentioned. And in 1988, nine months before this issue of Secret Origins, Animal Man got his first ongoing series, written by Morrison, with art by Chaz Trog, I may be pronouncing that wildly inaccurate, and covers by Brian Bolland. This mature series, which would eventually fall under the Vertigo imprint about halfway through its 89-issue run, raised Animal Man's profile to the point where he became a founding member of Justice League Europe. 
after his series ended in 1995, Animal Man made sporadic appearances in DC event stories for the next decade. After Infinite Crisis, Animal Man spent a year trying to get home from the far reaches of space in the weekly series 52. Animal Man starred in his own series again when the new 52 launched, and because it was written by Jeff Lemire, it was actually really good, serving as a kind of sister title to Swamp Thing. He then joined the Canadian-based or Canadian-inspired or sponsored something team Justice League United. I don't know what DC's rebirth has in store for him. Have you heard anything? No. He usually disappears for great lengths of time. You skipped one thing worth mentioning, by the way. Okay. A wonderful six-issue miniseries written by Jerry Conway called The Last Days of Animal Man. And it was was just a small, finite story. It took place in the future, and it was about Animal Man in his older years after his powers were starting to fail and how he related to the Justice League and Starfire, who he almost hooked up with sort of kind of in 52 – and his wife and everything else. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story. And it was Jerry Conway's return to comics, actually. I think it was 2008. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I have not heard what's going to happen uh, post-rebirth. I imagine nothing. I imagine he'll disappear for a while. And we'll get him back at some point when someone feels like writing a story. And, I, again, we'll talk about the nature of Animal Man stories towards the end. I keep saying we're going to talk about it at the end, but I don't want to front-load this whole thing. No, no. Give people a reason to keep listening. So. I will tell you, though, if you like Animal Man... Go to eBay and look for the action figure series. I think it was under the 52 banner when uh, the, the weekly series. They produced a number of action figures based on 52. They produced an absolutely spot-on, gorgeous Animal Man figure. And it's one of the few ones gracing my shelves that are not Aquaman, Firestorm, or Blue Devil. And it's uh, a really, really, really nice, nice Animal Man figure. Worth getting. And he's got the leather jacket. I've got one from the DC Universe Classics line. That was really, really cool. The best part was it came in a two-pack with Bawana Beast. Oh, geez. Because I've also got a Bawana Beast figure. Yes. <laughs> That's hysterical. Before we get into the Secret Origin of the character, did you have any thoughts on the cover to Secret Origins issue 39? Okay, well, first, Mike Kaluta, obviously a great artist. Animal Man has a long history of having amazing cover art. Again, Brian Bolland. I mean, who can sneer at that? And I say that because, folks, if you don't know... Almost up till the first, I don't know what, 40, 50 covers. I don't remember what, how far it goes. Brian Bolland drew the cover to every issue of Animal Man. Every issue was just, you see it on the shelves and it just stood out because it was amazing art. So here, Mike Kaluta, another great artist. I'm not a huge fan of the cover though. I think Animal Man looks great, but I don't like the, how Man Bat is sort of in the dominant position because Man Bat, you know, looks like he's overtaking Animal Man. Mm. I, I'm not a fan of that, partially because, and I realize I'm about to say something extremely controversial, but. I don't like Man Bat. That's where you put the dun 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 stinger. Hang on, but, it's going to sound like our Skype connection is failing, but that's just me hanging out. So. Okay, understood, understood. I've never been a fan of Man Bat. He is simply a poor man's Kurt Connors. I'm sorry. Okay, uh, Professor Allen and I did kind of address that. Okay. That well, he, I'm glad he is basically did. the same, basically created to tap into the exact same thing, except his motivations for and his origin are less compelling and less sympathetic. There so I, I completely agree with you on that point. And I feel like he came out of like one late night drunken binge that <laughs> Neil Adams or whoever, what other writer he was working with, I don't remember who created the character, so forgive me. I, I will listen to the Professor Allen side and I'll understand all that, but I just feel like it was, you know, Neil Adams getting drunk one night and he's like, I'm sick of drawing Batman, Man Bat. That's what I'm going to draw next. I'm going to draw Man Bat. And that's where we got this from. 
Okay, but a drunken binge creative session with Neil Adams in the 70s is still better than a whole (laughs) lot of other. (laughs) I'll grant you that. There's some truth in that. But I just... Other than the power record with Mambat, just that just got me off Rob's uh, naughty list. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a real fan of the character. Terribly sorry. Everyone, send your hate mail to secretorigins at uh, gmail.com or whatever the hell your email address is. <laughs> it's on your site, dude. <laughs> I know that. I'm trying to make sure they go nowhere because <laughs> I don't want to read the hate mail. <laughs> Any other thoughts or notes before we get into the story? I love me some just keep saying it. I'm just going to should, should, should we tell the people at home, since you covered his publication history, you didn't touch this? DC Nation did the series of shorts. Uh, some involved with Super Best Friends and all these funny different little cartoons. And I think the Teen Titan stuff might fall under some of that. But they did little Animal Man segments, which are hysterical. <laughs> and it does not paint Animal Man in a very positive light. He's usually quite stupid, actually. <laughs> but they are hysterical. I assume uh, Ryan's going to drop some audio in here from some of the episodes somewhere. Uh, if nothing else, just go out to YouTube and Google Animal Man DC Nation, and you will sit back and have yourself a nice laugh fest. They're all like, what, a minute and 30 seconds or something? Oh, if so, that, yeah. Yeah, so they're definitely worth checking out. Yeah. It's basically just it, you see Dark Side conquering the world and everything, like Red Skies, like it's a crisis or something, and Animal Man's like, it's time for me to take action, and he just admonishes somebody for tying his dog leash to like a stop sign or something. It's like, you can't abandon your dog. It's a real responsibility. It's all series of things like that. Him protecting animals, but obviously missing the big picture. Mm -hmm. Fun stuff. Which goes to show why Grant Morrison wrote the story he wrote instead of writing about Animal Man saving animals. (laughs) There you go. Speaking of that, are you ready to tell the listeners the secret origin of Animal Man? I'm ready to tell them the secret origin that is given to us in this comic. How's that? (laughs) It's like 25% of the origin story. (laughs) Well, prior to 1988, it's 100% of his origin story. (laughs) So, well, we'll get into it, folks. The comic itself, or I should say the story itself, is called The Myth of the Creation, or what it should have been more accurately titled, Animal Man 9.5. It is written by Grant Morrison, pencils by Tom Grummet, inks by Doug Hazelwood. Now, Tom Grummet was not the regular series artist. He had been a fill-in on issue nine and here, and, you know, it's Grummet, so it's absolutely gorgeous. As we get into the story, on the surface, this is a fairly straightforward 19-page origin. There's two plots running through it. One follows Animal Man in modern day. The other follows some mysterious beings reviewing his origin. Taken at face value, it's not confusing. But just keep in mind, folks, this is Grant Morrison. As I mentioned, we're going to follow uh, the two different plots. For the sake of discussion, I'm going to talk about them separately. For the first plot, we start in modern day. Animal Man comes bursting out of a lake, taking flight and gasping for breath in a dramatic full-page splash. Pun intended. On the lake bank are his son and his daughter, and they're marveling at their dad flying overhead. Animal Man continues flying, but clearly his path is very erratic. Something's wrong. He lands on the lake bank near his wife. Uh, Her name's Ellen, by the way. And she is completely involved in her artwork and oblivious to her husband's struggles. We find out that Animal Man, whose real name, as we said, is Buddy Baker, he's having trouble repairing his animal-based powers. Now, during the recent Invasion crossover, by the way, there's a podcast you can listen to about that called uh, First Strike Invasion. Plug, plug. So during the Invasion crossover, and here's a big spoiler for it, there was this something called a gene bomb. Nothing to do with Jean Grey, but anyway. Uh, it detonated and apparently messed up all of Animal Man's powers. Normally, he can sense nearby animals and duplicate their abilities as superpowers. For example, in the lake, he should have been able to duplicate nearby fish's ability to breathe underwater. Unfortunately, instead of working properly, his powers duplicated the abilities of a woodchuck somewhere nearby the lake. That's why he came out of the lake gasping for air. 
When Buddy, and by the way, everyone calls him Buddy rather than Animal Man. When Buddy tries to duplicate the abilities of his own dog, instead he accidentally duplicates Flea's abilities and he gains the superpower of super leaping. The only super ability he seems to be working regularly is duplicating flight, which is pretty good because you don't want him crashing to the ground when he's flying. His power failure really has Buddy worried, especially since he's just been inducted into the Justice League, specifically Justice League Europe. So, the test not being successful, the Baker family pack up their things and head for home. We get a few glimpses into the struggles of parenthood with the Baker children. Uh, Their children are named Cliff and Maxine. The kids tease each other, and they're both vying for the parents' attention. And while they're walking home, they come across an old cabin, which gets Buddy reminiscing about his own superheroic origins. Now, that's it for the modern-day plot. Buddy's powers are out of whack. Now, for the second plot, we're going to follow these two mysterious alien beings that we're introduced to. They were recently awoken from a long slumber by something they call the Traveler, which I'm going to spoil it for you. The Traveler's the ship, the spaceship. Anyway, these two yellow-skinned aliens are standing in a very alien-like landscape, and they're watching the Baker family on these big fancy-shaped orbs. They refer to Buddy Baker as, quote, our animal man, like he's a possession of theirs. They comment that he's been altered almost beyond recognition since they saw him last, and they say they've discovered some massive discrepancies in the continuum. They note that he now appears younger, and they say some recent event has, again, I quote, undone our morphogenic graphs and cut him loose from the avatar bestiary. I love that. That just sounds so cool. <laughs> Fancy words to basically say his animal powers are messed up. Apparently, this condition might kill him, too. So to determine what has happened to the continuum while they slept, they decide to review Animal Man's origins as they remember it. So what follows is a pretty faithful retelling of parts from Strange Adventures number 180 and 184. Sometimes it's the exact same panel redrawn and sometimes the exact same dialogue. The flashback opens with a 1960s-style teasing splash page with the title card, I Was a Man with Animal Powers. So you see plain-clothed Buddy Bakers leaping into the air and punching a stampeding elephant. The elephant has another man in its trunk and is clearly hostile. Buddy's thoughts reveal that he's using a tiger's ability to leap and a gorilla's strength to take on the elephant. Now, this is a complete replication of the splash page from issue 180 of Strange Adventures, so it's dead-on copy. Like a 1960s comic, the splash is a teaser, and then we get into the story what happened before that. So, technically, it's breaking, like, the rule of rules. We're having a flashback within a flashback, which you're really not supposed to do. But, anyway, we're introduced to meek and mousy Buddy Baker. He's sitting on the front porch of his girlfriend's house. He's wearing normal clothes, and he has blonde hair cut in a crew cut. Now, normally, he's a pretty confident guy, but when he gets around his best girl, Ellen, he gets weak in the knees, and in this case, he couldn't get up the courage to ask her to marry him. Once again, he fails to follow the question, and both Buddy and Ellen are disappointed when he makes excuses to leave. He's a mouse of a man. Get it? It's a joke. It's funny. The next day, Buddy was out hunting with his buddy, Roger. They each took different trails, and Buddy came upon a rabbit. Buddy shoots the rabbit dead, and when he approaches the ridge to collect his prize, he hears a loud noise over the ridge. There's this blinding explosion of lights, and Buddy's knocked unconscious. When he awakes, he finds himself in that same field, but now he's staring face-to-face with a tiger. Seriously, a tiger, loose in the backwoods of America. I'm not making this up. Buddy is startled, and the tiger springs at him. Instinctively, Buddy leaps out of the way. And boy, does he leap. He leapt as far and as high as the tiger. Bewildered, the shocks continue when a gorilla comes up behind Buddy from in the bushes. Stuck between a rock and a hard place, or in this case, a tiger and a gorilla, Buddy's in dire straits. The tiger leaps at Buddy. Once again, he reacts instinctively. He reaches out, grabs the tiger by its pauses, and then with this crazy super strength, swings the tiger around and slams it into the gorilla. Thankfully, at that same moment, some guys arrive to capture these animals with nets. Turns out, 
now this is where it begins to make sense. Turns out there was a train wreck nearby, and several circus animals have escaped. Catching his breath, Buddy realizes that he somehow has mimicked the leaping powers of the tiger and the strength of the gorilla. What could have caused this? His friend Roger finds a clue. Remember that ridge we mentioned? Uh, or I guess I mentioned because Ryan's really doing nothing except sitting back and letting me read the synopsis that I had to write all by myself for his show. Thanks for that, pal. And anyway. drinking. <laughs> So remember the ridge I mentioned where the explosion happened? Well, Roger and Buddy go look over the ridge, and there they find a spaceship. Yes, a freaking alien spaceship. Buddy somehow deduces that the radiation from the spaceship affected him, giving him the characteristics of nearby animals. Personally, I think that's quite a leap of logic there, Buddy. And uh, we talked about those two aliens watching this origin. We segue back to them for a few moments. Even they comment on the cuteness, as uh, they, they said it's a touching or whatever, of Buddy's blind faith when confronted with the impossible, that he just makes this leap of logic that that's where his powers come from. The aliens also note again how things have changed. The Buddy Baker they remember is older, and the one in the origin is also less sophisticated motivations and attitudes. They wonder what's happened to change things recently. So we go back, we continue with Buddy's origin. Once again, Buddy nervously returns to Ellen's front porch. This time, he just barely musters up the courage to ask her to marry him. She enthusiastically says yes, and then he passes out from his nerves. Then we learn of a second adventure of the man with animal powers, which is from uh, Strange Adventures 184, where Buddy saved the world from an alien invasion. In the conflict, he chases away these aliens from Earth, but he never really bothers to ask the question of their motives or their origins. And for that matter, he never really even looks into the spaceship that gave him his powers in the first issue. Apparently, it was a simpler time. Eventually, Buddy took on the identity of Animal Man, found he uses animal powers in the service of mankind, just as these mysterious beings apparently had always intended. Then we get a full-page splash, revealing the two mysterious beings as, dun-dun-dun, they're the same aliens Buddy fought in his second adventure. And one of them says, I wonder if he'll remember us. To be continued in Animal Man number 10, on sale next week. So... Really, this tells you what Animal Man's origin was in the 60s. And there's a lot of implications that it's not the same anymore. And you have to follow the Animal Man book to get this. Now, I want to talk on this for just a minute here. I'm not jumping too far ahead. But again, those origins sound pretty straightforward, right? We talk about Animal Man's origin, plus something's happened to his powers. However, if you were reading the Animal Man series at the time, you realize these aliens are talking about something much bigger. They mentioned the discrepancies in the continuum and the changes to Buddy as they remember him, they're actually talking about Crisis on Infinite Earths. Keep in mind, folks, this was released in early 1989, so it's only been about three years since Crisis was over. And at this point, no one was really supposed to be talking about Crisis. You know, that was done, that was the old history, you only focus on the new history. Well, these aliens not only remember the pre-Crisis history, they recognize that it's changed. And as you read the ongoing series, the story goes deeper. Now, I'm going to talk about all that in a minute, but before we do all that, Ryan, what do you think of the story? I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I wish it was a more complete story. The kind of self-contained narrative of the backstory that the aliens are recalling, what they're sort of viewing as their memories of the origin, which just kind of recaps the first two stories from Strange Adventures, that's really well done. It's it's fine. It's It's just a little, you know, catch up. But, I mean, maybe Grant Morrison really was doing his job because I got to the end of this, I was like, Wait a minute, I've only got a part of the story, though, because what is the explanation for all the... Like, I knew that it was the crisis, but I was like, I've got to read what comes next. So, as a springboard for this story to want to read Animal Man, because the story with these aliens continues in issues 10, 11, and 12 mm-hmm. of that series, I was instantly... Yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm not done. So, in a way, it feels like this isn't a complete secret origin story, 
but it does give you all the stuff that Roy Thomas would have given you if he was writing this. <laughs> like, well, there, there's a lot of stuff they actually left out of Strange Adventures number 180. I um, this guy I know on the internet named Ryan, he told me that I could find those <laughs> issues on Comicsology, yeah. so I went out and read those. And in Strange Adventures 180, uh, not only does he fight the gorilla and the tiger, he also fights an elephant, a sea lion, and a weird alien with animal powers. That None of that even gets mentioned here. In fact, the splash page where it shows him punching the elephant, remember we talked about that? Mm-hmm. It does, the elephant never shows up in the rest of the story. <laughs> he does in the actual Strange Adventures 180 issue, though. And at the end of the story, he even lost his powers, only to regain them at the beginning of the next appearance. So you know, 184, he gets his powers back, and at that point, he keeps them. And, uh, well, and the that's powers he- were even sort of ill-defined at that point, because in his third appearance, when he actually gets his costume, mm-hmm. it's like he can use whatever powers he wants, and he can combine them and everything, and they haven't really locked into what his power set is or how it works at the time. Yeah, in the second one, he's still using the tiger power and the gorilla power as if he like hung on to it. Right. As if like they're always his. And uh, yeah, they took him a while to sort of figure out what his powers are going to be. And again, just so you understand, folks, he senses what a nearby animal is. Well, at least as it was developed years later. He senses where a, near- where a nearby animal is, and he's supposed to be able to replicate those abilities. At one point, he even uh, senses bacteria in his own body and replicates himself to make a bunch of duplicates. He does some crazy stuff over the series. And in one issue, when he's checking out Vixen, and he yeah. replicates uh, a gorilla that's in heat or in season, yeah, things get awkward for a minute. He is, <laughs> he is happy when a crazy robot battle tank pulls up over the hill and he has to fight it. Because like, he keeps a- having to remind himself, he's a married man. He's like, I'm a married man, I can't be having these thoughts. He's like, yep. So, yes, I agree. Uh, I think it does its job of making you want to read more of the Animal Man comic, which probably, honestly, if DC corporate were to step back and go, you know, what do we want the Secret Origins comic to do? Well, sure, we want them to buy that issue, Secret Origins, but really we want it to be a springboard for people to go read the monthly comic. And I think this very effectively does that. This is Animal Man Chapter 9.5. This is a, a story in the middle. That's why it's collected the way it is in the... In fact, if you pick up the Animal Man trade paperbacks that were published decades ago... Volume 2 begins with this story, but it has the cover to issue 10 first. <laughs> it has the cover to issue 10, then this story and issue 10 printed back to back. I mean, it really is. It could have been the first half of issue 10. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of stuff in here, as you read issue 10, 11, and 12, begins to make more sense. Like the opening page of Secret Origins is the African like Kilimanjaro. Mm-hmm. There's no reference to that through this story whatsoever. You have to read issue 10 or 11 to figure that out. <laughs> so it, it, that's where it all starts to make sense. Now, I want to dig into this a little more about the Grant Morrison era, if I can. Please. Or am I, ju- or am I jumping ahead? No, go ahead. All right. So I mentioned earlier that the aliens are talking about crisis. They're doing something that no one had been allowed to do at this point, which was acknowledge crisis and acknowledge that things had changed. And as you read the ongoing story, it goes deeper. Other characters also begin to remember that history has changed. Like Psycho Pirate, we all knew that he's the only one who remembers the crisis. Well, Psycho Pirate becomes an active character in the Grant Morrison run of Animal Man. Some people, and this is where it really gets freaky, are aware that they are simply characters in a comic book, like Fourth Wall Breaking, like Mad Hatter. And then that expands even further. They understand that they are just artificial creations that act and think at the whim of a comic book writer. And instead of breaking the fourth wall in like a funny way, like Ambush Bug or Deadpool, it's downright creepy and pretty sad a lot of times because you realize these characters know that when you close the comic, they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not going to spoil any more because either you've read Animal Man and you know what, where this goes or you haven't read Animal Man and I think you really, really should. Uh, it all culminates in one of the most bizarre storyline endings of all time. 
it is quite possibly the most Grant Morrison comic book ever. I think that's fair to say. It's a hard day for the superhero when he realizes that all of the horrible things that have happened to him are the result of the writer's pet dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now, it, it's interesting. We are talking about the history of the, of the series. When Graham Morrison was brought on board, he was brought on as sort of like the British invasion. You know, Alan Moore made a splash with uh, Swamp Thing, pun intended. And so they start grabbing every British writer they could find. So they brought in Graham Morrison. And apparently, as I understand it, he was only allowed to plan out the first four issues. And I think they were originally considering it maybe as a miniseries. I'm not sure. But so he plans out the first four issues. And if you read it, you can tell. The first four issues make up one story. And it's sort of decent. It's not amazing. But it's, it's a decent story. But it's issue five where everything clicks and starts to become interesting. That one's called The Coyote Gospel. And it features this cartoon coyote who's basically Wiley Coyote, right? But his name is Crafty instead. And he actually comes into the DC universe. And in the story, Animal Man meets this coyote, Crafty, who doesn't speak, just like Wiley Coyote. And he hands Animal Man this book called The Gospel According to Crafty. And it's this amazing story. And it tells this tale how Crafty got tired of the endless violence in his world. Again, essentially a Looney Tunes cartoon. And he strikes a deal with his artistic creator, the man who actually created him. He decides to uh, come to our world, the DC Universe, in exchange for peace in his cartoon world. So Crafty then dies at the end of the story, and he's being held by Animal Man. And as the camera pulls back to show Crafty on the road where it crosses, basically it's making Crafty into a Christ figure. And then we see the fingers and the paintbrush of Crafty's creator, the person coloring the comic book, reaches in and colors red blood around Crafty. It's, it's very meta, and it's it sort of replicated on the cover as well, where you see Brian Ballin does this amazing cover depicting basically Animal Man in the same pose, where he's getting painted with an artist's hand. It's crazy. It's, it, it really stops and makes you think about the creation versus, you know, uh, meaning creation on the page and the person who's creating it. It's a really deep story. Yeah, that, that Coyote Gospel, it's one of my favorite issues of the whole series. It's, just, it's a beautiful sort of microcosm for what this entire book is. Yeah, um, it, it's almost like a, a, a blueprint of where the series is going to go. Mm-hmm. One uh, point of order, though, Grant Morrison is Scottish. Whoops! Yeah, and I, I, I have to mention I should have said European invasion. Right. Of what I, said. I have to mention that just because uh, our friends, you know, Paul and Mike from Waiting for Doom, they'll get mad because they're also, you know, British or Scottish or whatever. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with Martin Gray. <laughs> Because, you know, he's, he's Scottish. I know. He so. actually is Scottish. No, he's not. He lives in Scotland, but he's not Scottish. And he's really ornery about it. Oh. He's actually – you know where he lives? He lives in Naboo. He sent me a picture. So. <laughs> Edinburgh. <laughs> he does. So Grant Morrison's run concludes with issue 26. So it's only a little more than two years. It doesn't feel like that. It felt like much longer at the time. And I, during my reread, in, in preparation for this, um, Ryan was nice enough to invite me to do this because of uh, my passion for the character. So I started rereading the series. I started with issue one, and I've only gotten two pretty much around here. The issue, I think I'm on issue 12 at this point. But anyway, during my reread, it became obvious that by issue number eight, Grant Morrison had all the story beats already worked out all the way up to issue 26. There is some stuff in issue eight that at the time when I read it, I didn't know what it was. But when I finished the series and I look back, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is something from near the end of the series in this issue. This was all planned. out. It's amazing. It's amazing forward planning, planning a year and a half in advance. I mean, nowadays, most writers don't even last a year and a half in a book, let alone plan it that far in advance. It blew me away. Now, also to give a little bit of perspective, because you talked about Vertigo and stuff like that. Yes, Morrison's run ends with issue 26. And at that point, it is not even labeled suggestive for mature readers. 
which is kind of shocking to me based on the stuff that appears in these comics. I thought it would have been. It wasn't until issue 51 where they picked up the Suggestion for Mature Readers label, and it wasn't until issue 57 where it became Vertigo Book. Uh, what other else? Justice League Europe, we mentioned that. Even though Justice League Europe is what got me into Animal Man, the truth is he was barely in the book. He appears uh, sparingly up till about issue 12, and then he's out. You never even see him again. And he really didn't do a lot in the series anyway, which is kind of sad. So he never really got his chance with the Justice League until Justice League United, which the jury's out on people's feelings on that book, I think, because it got canceled. That might tell you something. But Back to this story specifically, just a few other notes. Like You mentioned like how they, they're recreating the sort of 1960s origin while having a sort of meta-commentary on the sort of differences in the fact that Buddy just assumes it's like, oh yeah, the radiation from the sh- <laughs> spaceship crash must have given me these weird powers. And they're like, well, these humans, they believe anything. And it's kind of, right. It's like, yeah, that's not how radiation works. Right. But at the same time, pick up any Silver Age, you know, Marvel Age comic from the 60s. That's exactly how radiation works. Yep. So, if readers, if you haven't picked up, like, just kind of going into it, what you'll eventually find out after a few more issues of the series is these aliens had sort of been playing God, playing mad scientist, and trying to create this animal man thing on Earth. And they went through a few beta tests. Like, we find mm-hmm. out that they created the Tantu totem that gives Vixen her powers. They created the helmet that gave Bawana Beast his powers. And eventually, they find Buddy when the ship crashes, and the crash killed him. They said, no, you died. We rebuilt you cell by cell, genetically, and did these morphogenetic grafts onto you, like, to give you these powers. And then, you know, they're like, yeah, the invasion gene bomb screwed that up, and we have to redo it. And it's interesting what other writers down the line even do, because like, I remember one issue, I think it was a Tom Veach issue, I don't remember. Um, Buddy's profession, by the way, is a stuntman. Mm-hmm. That, they don't mention anywhere in these issues here, but that's what he's been doing. He's a Hollywood stuntman, and he uses his powers to do it. But there's this great scene where he's driving a car, and the car's getting ready to explode, and it takes on the toughness of a triceratops or something like that. He reaches back into the morphogenic field. He doesn't have to be near the animals anymore. Mm-hmm. There's anything in the morphogenic field. So he actually takes on the abilities of a dinosaur, which when I read that, I was like, that's mind-blowing. That's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, all of it came from this story, like you just mentioned, where they, they rebuilt him and, and tapped him into it. Well, even, I think, the end of issue one, maybe? Like, maybe it was issue two of the series. Like, one of the first dramatic times you really see his powers in effect Buddy's arm gets ripped off when he's fighting somebody. Like, his arm just, like, shredded off. And, it, like, the issue ends with him, like, bleeding out. And I'm like, holy God, what are they going to do? And it's like, um, just before he passes out, he taps into a lizard. And he can regenerate that limb. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> it's like, all the things you can do with this guy. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost a license to do whatever you want, really. Because mm-hmm. you know, as, as long as you dig deep enough, you can find an animal who's got some ability in the animal field. And I know this because I played a role-playing game <laughs> where I had the ability to mimic animal powers. And boy, I came up with a whole list of stuff. <laughs> Pretty much had something for every occasion and drove my GM nuts. <laughs> uh, one other note uh, specifically about the script that I jotted down just because I thought it was kind of funny at the time. When Buddy's telling Ellen that, you know, he can't figure out what's wrong with his powers, she suggests that he has M.E. What is that? I didn't I, know what I that actually, was. I actually knew this one. It's myalgic encephalomyelitis or mm. something like that. It's better easier, known, for, easier for you to say. Exactly. Better known as chronic fatigue syndrome or what uh, we used to call the flu. Gotcha. Yeah. But 
Really? That was just like a weird bit of geek medical knowledge? Is that a thing? <laughs> well, he attached it to a yuppie disease. Yeah, is what yeah. He well, said, I love that. Yeah, they know. called it the yuppie flu back in the yep. 80s or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he even says, do I look like a yuppie? It's like, well, nowadays we'd call you a hipster with a jacket and the costume. But. Well, you talked about his wife. So let's, let's touch on that for a second. Mm-hmm. So we both said one of the interesting aspects of Buddy is that he was married. And he has two kids. I mean, that's really unusual in comic books back then. Um, Superman hadn't been married at this point yet. There weren't a lot of married heroes out there other than probably Aquaman that I can think of off the top of my head in the DC universe. And the interesting thing about this was rather than just being a frequently ignored subplot or an annoying subplot, Buddy's family are integral parts of almost every issue. Mm-hmm. Grant found ways to use them. And uh, also tied to that was the fact that his, uh, his identity was public. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone in the world knew who Buddy Baker was, Animal Man. And there was also a lot of tied in with his family about him being a vegetarian. Like there's this great issue in the beginning of the series where he decides to become a vegetarian and is throwing out all the meat in the fridge. <laughs> and his wife comes home and she's like totally pissed off. <laughs> she's like, it would have been nice because he, he doesn't say he's a vegetarian. He says we are vegetarians now. And she's like, it would have been nice to discuss this first. And it sort of makes sense if you're, you know, animal man. And uh, that, that makes a nice contrast, too, by the way, in this origin when he kills the rabbit. It's just like, I was actually shocked when I read that. I'm like, that's not Buddy Baker. What? And that moment right there that you were just talking about, when they said that, no, our heroes are not going to get married... Dan DiDio's justification for that decision was that marrying off their superheroes would eliminate or would negate some of the built-in tension that you have when these characters can date and when they have other things. And it would lead to domesticity, which would automatically tame the heroes and force them to compromise. It's like, have you been married, dude? Right. (laughs) Clearly, he knew nothing about marriage. (laughs) Yeah, like, what kind of Stepford wives do Dan DiDio and Jim Lee have that they think that a married superhero is going to lack tension and stress and any kind of story potential. Now, in their own defense, it may have been they simply didn't want to write comic books about people fighting over the bills and children's bedtimes. But... But you fight over like a character. But as just a, a moment where a character has this profound moment in his superhero career that is going to come back home with him. And you're going to have to fight about it. And... I don't want to get off on this tangent too much, but I just think in the New 52, they were writing for they were writing for an audience of teenage kids who thought that marriage was worse than death. I think they were writing for the what they perceived to be the teenage audience of the 1990s. Right. And it all backfired, and now we've got DC Rebirth. In fact, marriage is back. Love is back, man. Superman, it. he's married. Aquaman, he's engaged. Animal Man's married. You knew Animal Man was married in the New 52, right? Yeah, I know. He still had kids, but I, yeah. they put the family through the ringer. If he, Jeez, if he was going they. to be a married family man, they made sure that they punished him for it. <laughs> so true. So true. So. All right, let's talk about the leather jacket. Okay. So, <laughs> first of all, it really does look cool. I mean, <laughs> there's no denying the animal man looks so much better with the leather jacket. And is this like one of the earliest instances of 90s jacket coolness? I think it might be. Yeah, well, yeah, this was well before the Avengers and the X-Men did it. I don't, I don't know when Rogue started wearing a jacket, because I think she was the first one. It, that wasn't until, like, the relaunched X-Men, or, like, right that around was, the time. That, that that would have been 1990 at the earliest, probably 91. Yeah, it was, like, Jim Lee's yeah. right, bef- right before the relaunch, because yeah. Jim Lee was drawing it before the relaunch. I think that's when she got right, the but jacket. He, he redesigned her entire costume for that. Like, now, I mean, you might have had Gambit at this time. Mm, with, with the, the trench coat. coat. 
Mm. I'm trying to think. I don't know if he came out in 89 or 90, but it was well, well, let's We'll let someone else do the research for this sure. in the comments. But if anyone else can think of 80s or 90s jacket coolness before Animal Man, please let us know because I can't think of any. <laughs> and it does. I mean, even to this day, it looks so much better with the leather jacket. It just works. Nobody else looks like that. I mean, his costume is – I think his costume is cool enough without it, but he does look sort of like every other superhero of his era. I always thought, honestly, the costume's kind of dorky because it's orange and blue, which you don't see a lot of, and it's Florida Gators, which is gross. <laughs> I love the goggles when they're in sort of the sideways triangle look. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like them when they're squared off or circular. I like them when they're angular. And the A looks cool without the cross beam, you know, where it's more like a heartbeat sort of going across his chest. And But, but sometimes, like, the boots and stuff, they do these, like, little rounded phalanges and stuff that look kind of goofy. So his costume comes and goes as far as coolness factor. But... With the triangle glasses and the jacket and the foofy hair, the booster gold foofy hair, it just works. Now, let's talk about the art because this plays a role into the, you know how it's drawn. I started with a Tom Grummet issue. Then I moved on to The Secret Origins, also by Tom Grummet. Then I started picking up back issues and I read subsequent issues by this guy, Chaz Truog, who you mentioned. I hate the Chaz Truog art. And he stayed with the book for a long time. Mm-hmm. Now, did he accomplish his job? Did he draw the characters fairly effectively? Yes, he did. But it just never appealed to me. I was never a huge fan of it. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe it's more the inker's fault. Um, although, I don't think so because the same inker did this story. I think it was not Doug Hazelwood, I think. Yes, it was. He Thank was you. I was, I, was, I was vamping while I was looking for it. Yeah. Uh, yes, Doug Hazelwood, who was Chaz Truog's inker. So I don't really think it's the inker's problem. I think it was... Chaz Truong's, and I just, it bothered me because, like, here you've got these really deep, and maybe it was on purpose, you've got these really deep stories, and yet you've got sort of cartoony, almost Joe Staten-y kind of cartoony artwork. Not the 70s Joe Staten, but the 80s Joe Staten. And um, it just it always disappointed me. Now, you say you're a fan of it. I do hear that it is a little bit more cartoony in nature, and part of it is just the jarringness of seeing a Brian Bolland cover and then opening up and finding anything <laughs> other. That yeah. can be difficult. But you just have to expect that because Ballin doesn't do a whole lot of interiors comparatively. I think it's stronger at the beginning of the series. Like, I think the first eight issues that he did were better than the next, you know, couple eight issues or something after this little break with Tom Grummet. I don't know. They, I, I think at the time when Morrison is still building up to the more metatextual exploration of the comic book itself, the first couple issues are sort of a conventional superhero story, and I think the cartoony sort of Staten-esque design, I think it's fitting. I think that works for the, the Coyote Gospel um, it's, works for that issue, but like with the, the crazy animal testing stuff, doesn't Yeah, Yeah, I hear you. Um, it didn't bother me. Okay. I, I don't. It wasn't Tom Grummet. Few are, um, but <laughs> I wasn't turned off by the art. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The, the creative teams on Animal Man over the years is a long list of amazing writers. It really is, and it's a sort of mixed bag on artists. Now the writers. Let's just run through some real quick here. I mean, you've got Grant Morrison, then Peter Milligan, Tom Veach, Jamie Delano. I mean. Clearly, a whole bunch of writers who write some dark, creepy, weird-ass stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you pick up people then like Jerry Prozer, uh, who I have no idea who that is. Uh, Jerry Conway, love him. Jeff Lemire, great, solid writers. Then the artists. Again, we mentioned Brian Ballin. We mentioned Tom Grummet. Then you could sort of call in Bart Sears from Justice League International, sure. or Europe. Uh, then Chaz Truog, who, again, not a fan. But then you get a long run by Steve Dillon. Wow, Steve Dillon, you know, preacher, 
Amazing, you know, Punisher, great artist. By the way, started over on Doctor Who stuff in, in England. But cool. then you get some out there stuff. You get Travel Foreman, uh, Raphael Albuquerque, Steve. I don't know how you say Pug or Poog. I don't know. He's P U G H. I don't know how you say that. But and it's really it's it's sort of like an eclectic group of. For me, sometimes I would struggle with the art, especially in the new Fifty Two series. It's like, wow, this is really wild and different. I don't know that I like it. But it's wild and different, and if I liked independent comics, I probably would love this artwork. Is kind of how I feel a lot of times. It's like it doesn't really match superhero comics. And then if you go back to the Silver Age, you get Carmen Infantino and Gil Kane. They're no slouches either. But the thing I notice here about the writers, and I think that may be why they pick sort of quirky artists quite often, is that no one seems to really want to tell an Animal Man story. They don't want to tell an Animal Man adventure story. Everyone has some sort of agenda. Some story they want to tell using Animal Man as their cipher, if you will. Graham Morrison, it's not a comic about Animal Man. It's this metafiction, as we said. It's all about the writing of comic books. You know, Jeff Lemire, he wrote a horror story. And a lot of it was focused on Earth's elementals, but it wasn't necessarily Animal Man. Jerry Conway wrote a story about the effects of growing older. Tom Veach wrote some weird-ass story that eventually drove me off the book. Um, or, maybe it was J- or maybe it was Jamie Delano who drove me off the book. Ooh, now I don't remember. Either way, it's almost like no one wanted to write in just a simple, straightforward Animal Man adventure story. I would be very interested to read a straightforward Animal Man adventure story, but I don't know that I've ever seen one. Maybe an issue or two, but not much else. I think part of that is, and it was one of the first things that you said on the segment, was you love Buddy. Mm-hmm. You love Buddy Baker, and he is such a lovable, likable, sympathetic, but... He's he's the perfect vessel for the superhero because he is the family man because he's not a superstar because he's he's a hard luck hero but he's not you know cursed with that damn Parker luck you know <laughs> he's very much the everyman and he's got everyman type of powers where he can just you know he's he's, so, he's he's Jimmy Stewart without the stuttering there you go and he can just pick up whatever he needs for a given situation so it's easy for writers to just project whatever they're going through at their time into him and just use him as a vessel for writers to exercise their own demons or whatever going on i mean that's certainly what Conway was thinking when he was writing Last Days of Animal Man at that point in his career. Which is probably as close as you're going to get to an Animal Man adventure story, by the way, that one. Because mm-hmm. there's not a lot of other really deep, deep stuff going on there like it is with Morrison or the other guys. Now, all told, the first series ran 89 issues. I collected about 70 of them. That's apparently when I jumped off. I saw – it just yeah, I didn't like the direction it was going. I remember at one point Animal Man didn't even look human anymore. He had turned into physically animal parts, like he had a bird head and stuff like that. It just eventually I was like, I I can't do this anymore. It was very, very, very vertigo at that point. Then the new 52 run went 30 issues, and I collected about 20 of those before I finally jumped off the book as well. I guess I just I see I see the the stop sign in the distance, and I just get out before before it's too late. I don't know. (laughs) But I would love to read another new Animal Man book. I would be all over it, and I would be very excited to read further adventures of this character. Let me ask you this, because this is a question I've I've kind of struggled with in my own trying to suss out what the DC Universe is and what it has room for and what it doesn't. Love, man. It's all love now. now it, Lo- love and hope and optimism. That's what I heard. Is there room in DC's like publishing slate for both Animal Man and Vixen? Mm, that's a good question. That's actually a real good question. Um, no, probably not. Uh, their, their powers are too similar. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they, they have basically identical powers. 
And quite frankly, Vixen allows the company a lot more diversity and a lot of good press by making a strong, dominant woman who is also black. They can use that to forward some agenda they might have to show diversity in their comics. So Animal Man, you know, the blonde-haired white guy, you know, forget it, buddy. You're Literally, buddy, you're out of here. So yeah, you're probably right. They probably don't have room for both. So that, because I do enjoy the Anime Man stories, because he's been written a lot better than her for better than her. You're going to get a nasty letter from Frank. But in terms of just like the the depth of the characterization and the exploration of these themes, everything that we just talked about, I think maybe Buddy belongs in his own little weird Vertigo-esque mature readers like corner where you just use him for those weird type of oddball stories. Maybe if you're going to tell a classic adventure story of this character, maybe that's when you use Vixen. Maybe he's a supporting character in the Vixen book. Maybe. That could work. She was a supporting character in a few issues of his book, so... Well, back then, she was just, you know, the girl from Justice League Detroit. He even makes a comment. He's like, I thought thought everybody in Justice League Detroit died. (laughs) (laughs) I think this was after she'd, like, bounced around Suicide Squad for a while, but... I'm trying to remember. It was probably about the same time. It would have been 89. I think that's when she was in Suicide Squad, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I miss Buddy. And now you made me even sadder realizing that Vixen's the better move for DC to use. Hmm. Well, maybe they could find a place in a Justice League book for him again. Now, I'll be honest, Justice League United, it didn't do a lot for me. So I didn't stay terribly long, even though Buddy was in it. It wasn't a Buddy-centric book. And I got tired of seeing a bunch of people in blue and white, which apparently everyone on the team wore. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't stick with it. Now, if someone tells me Justice League United was an amazing book, I will dig up the trades or the issues and try it. But until I hear from you guys, I'm sad to say I didn't follow Buddy's last adventures. I think I read two issues from that series, and not even, like, issues one and two. <laughs> um, but it was sort of... Probably read the Doom Patrol issues, because that's all the guys from Waiting for Doom will talk about. Those crazy Scottish blokes. They're nuts. They're, t- they're nuts with their haggis. <laughs> their haggis and their crocodile dundee. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Recommended readings? Oof, okay. We've, certain, so, we've, we've hit a lot. We've hit on just about every material, all the material that there is. But well, I mean, again, the first issue, no, the first issue, the first series ran eighty-nine issues. Mm-hmm. Would I recommend all of them? No, no, I would not. So I would recommend you pick up the first twenty-six. You know, you can find those in trade paperback. Uh, pick up those. the The Graham Morrison issues are exceptional. Then, if you can find them, the Peter Milligan issues, which was just, I think it was just six issues that follow Grant Morrison are actually really good. When I first read them, I was very angry because he flipped everything in the Animal Man world on its head. But by the end of the story, it's explained why he did that. And so at first, when Peter Milligan took over, boy, was I pissed. But then by the end of the six-issue run, I was like, oh, okay, I'm pretty cool with that. So the Milligan run's good. There are certain elements of the Tom Veach run that I enjoyed. Uh, but mainly, I would stick with Morrison. Then I would jump ahead to the... Um, Jerry Conway collection, The Last Days of Animal Man. You can find the trade for that. And then I would pick up the Jeff Lemire trades. Yeah. yeah. The Jeff Lemire stuff, you you, you got to be willing for some very out there kind of artwork. And as you said, it really was sort of a companion book to Swamp Thing. If you can handle those two things, I think you'll enjoy it. It's, it's, it makes for a great, creepy horror comic. And I remember reading it. Actually, one of the things that appealed to me about the Animal Man book, besides loving Buddy and the fact that his family was so important, is I remember reading it thinking – Man, this really feels like those early Vertigo books. Because mm-hmm. I loved Vertigo in the early days. I, in fact, I was re- when Vertigo first launched, I was reading every single Vertigo book for probably the first couple of years. <laughs> uh, anything they put out, I bought. 
And eventually I just, it either became too much or I just grew out of that phase, whatever, out of my dark, dark, darkity, dark, dark phase. But uh, it's, it's, it's a good read. Now, I was reading Swamp Thing and Animal Man at the, new, mm-hmm. at the start of the New 52. And ironically, I think I dropped them both at the same time when they crossed over in, during Rot World. Rot World, yeah. Yeah, I think that's when I dropped both of them. It almost became a little too much. Yeah. So and it was it was a big storyline. It ran through both the books. I, I think, ironically, I dropped. I think when I dropped it issue twenty, that's not too far after uh, Rot World. I, I stuck with it for a while, and eventually, I was like, I was done. So. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, as far as other appearances, I think you already mentioned. If people want to read his earliest adventures from the sixties, Comicsology does have those issues of Strange Adventures where you can find them. They are reprinted in black and white. They're not like the full issue. I think they're just those stories. Well, the first one's in color. Oh, okay. Well, some of them are black and white. Yes, um, the other ones are. If you'd bothered to read them in advance of recording the show, you'd know. I read one of them that I had in an issue of Supergirl or something. But anyway. <laughs> um, The other place that I, I really enjoyed reading him was the 52 Weekly Series. Oh, yeah! Um, which was Animal Man and Adam Strange and Starfire trying to get back to Earth when they've been hurled across the galaxy. And the funny thing is because everybody has always played up Starfire as this sort of sex kitten character and she's trapped in space with two supposedly happily married men. Right. Who, Makes for very funny bits. There's, yeah. there's a lot of her bathing in the lake sort of scenes where <laughs> right. Buddy's having trouble watching her and, and Adam Strange is wishing, wishing his eyes worked. <laughs> At, at 52, that's a great recommendation. I completely forgot about that. That is a very good suggestion. And um, you got to watch those DC Nation Animal Man shorts. They're hysterical. Animal Man! <laughs> All right, Shag. Where else can people find you as if they don't already know? Well, I'm here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You can find me as part of the Fire and Water Podcast, which is the Aquaman Firestorm show. And we talk about... Aquaman and Firestorm. That kind of sort of explains itself, I suppose. Anyway, you can also find me on the Who's Who podcast, and you can find me on the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast, and once a year or so, we put out an episode of uh, Hero... I forgot the name of it. It's been so long. The Hero Points RPG podcast as well. Well, thank you very much for gracing the show with your presence one more time. It's always a pleasure. Just remember... Last episode received new Twitter favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Amandus at DCE USA, Andrew in Belfast, Ange, Bold Outlaw, Brian Mulvey, Callum Nauer or Naufer, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, Chris Sheehan, Cindy Womack, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Comics in Color, Comics in the Golden Age, Dan at Dinosaur No One, David Gutierrez, DS and RS, Earth 2 Chris, Film and Water Podcast, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, The Ice Age at The Bobby Krogan, Jeremy Gunter, Jim Bal, Lodix, Mario at Luther Lang, Mark Sweeney, Martin Gray, Matthew Thomas Cody, Radio vs. the Martians, Richard Field, World Spine Podcast, Sam Huntington, Siskoid, Sin, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Vivi Aguiar, Warlord Worlds, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Over on Facebook, Van Z, also known as Al Gerding, said he loved the last episode, but 
This comic wasn't my favorite version of their origins. The DC Digest was. But these are great characters. I am going to be the oddball once again and say my favorite Green Arrow and Speedy are the Golden Age versions. But Roy was always cool in the 70s and 80s, because he scored with goody-goody Donna Troy, and then goes the opposite end of the spectrum with Cheshire. You know, because of Al's well-documented love of the Golden Age, the first time I read his comment, I thought he was talking about Roy Thomas. It took me way too long to realize he meant Roy Harper slept with Donna in Cheshire. Anyway, other Facebook likes and shares came from Aaron Bias, Aaron Moss, Chris Davis, Christopher Ouellette, Chris Tyler, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, Gotham Shioran, Greg Arujo, The Headcast Network, Igor Glushkin, James Murray, Jeff Messer, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McClinchy, Keith G. Baker, Matthew Cody, Michael Lane, M.S. Lane, Mike Gillis, Nathaniel Hubbard, Pulped Pixel Podcast, Ruth Sutherland, Ryan Johnson, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Tim Wallace, Trekker Talk, Valdis A. Kunzens, Van Z, Vinny Gianfredi III, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. If you promoted this podcast on social media and I forgot to read your name, I apologize for that oversight. Just let me know and I'll correct the mistake next time. As always, you can leave comments on Facebook and Twitter, but you can also leave them on the website, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. I got a lot of great feedback about Green Arrow and Speedy on episode 38. As I do with every episode, I'm only cherry-picking from the comments. But if you want to read the entire feedback thread, head on over to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The first comment, as it so often does, comes from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast. Paul says, It's such a delight hearing Darren and Ruth, who elevate the synopsis to an art form. They could make a heap by offering their synopsizing services to the comic podcasting community. Sutherland Synopsis' Services. Ha! And Darren Sutherland responded to Paul's business idea. Sutherland Synopsis' Services sounds superb. Damn this alliteration. Uh, Darren said, I'm printing up business cards as I type this, and I'm getting ready to start counting the cash that will be flooding in any moment now. No kidding, guys. I might take advantage of that service if it was real. Uh, Back to Paul's comment. There have been so many great Green Arrow runs, but I hope I'm not on my own in appreciation of the Kevin Smith and Judd Winnick tenures. Phil Hester killed on the art for a chunk of that run. I did enjoy Kevin Smith's year on the book. I thought it was enjoyable, and Hester's art was terrific, as you said. I haven't read very much of Judd Winnick's time on the book, but what I did read, I wasn't crazy about. Uh, I know some people just hate Judd Winnick. I'm not one of those haters, but I didn't like his Green Arrow. The art, however, especially when Cliff Chang was on the book, that was sweet. Tim Wallace from the Blue Beetle blog Court Industries said, As long as I've read comics, I'd say Green Arrow has been a favorite of mine. But I'd be lying if I didn't say my exposure to Robin Hood through the British TV series Robin of Sherwood didn't dovetail perfectly into my reading Longbow Hunters and the Green Arrow series that followed. Plus, Disney's Robin Hood gets some love and recognition from Ruth. Awesome. All in all, a great episode. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl called Darren and Ruth the Tracy and Hepburn of the podcasting community, and he called their synopsis of Green Arrow's origin the bee's knees, so really my entire podcasting career is validated just by that one paragraph. 
Uh, but Martin continues saying, The Golden and Silver Age Green Arrow is mine. I love the clean-cut look, the trick arrows, the car, and the cave. My other favorite period is the action and world's finest shorts. I've never really got on with the Grell run for dispensing with the fun elements, brutalizing Dinah, aging up every other DC hero of his generation by default. Basically, Grell is responsible for Just for Hal and Parallax. Martin also suggested that DC publish a Great Frog album to coincide with the recent Black Canary LP. Speaking of which, Martin, I'm planning to revisit those old Black Canary and Green Arrow backup stories from World's Finest on the Power of Fishnets podcast, you know, once this show is completely done. I got a lengthy comment from Jeff Nettleton, naturally, uh, which talks all about how he discovered Green Arrow and his love for Robin Hood movies and serials. Uh, Jeff, Tim Wallace, and Darren, they all tossed out a bunch of their favorite depictions of Robin Hood and the adventurer's influence on Green Arrow. Then Jeff mentions, I always enjoyed Ali's politics, and it did a lot to shape my view of how society should be. However, I don't think many people after Denny O'Neill handled it well. I agree with that, Jeff. I think I said as much last episode. Uh, he goes on, The best handling for my money was in Justice League Unlimited. There, Ali gives his philosophy, and it really sums up liberalism for me. Look, I'm an old lefty. I believe that government exists to do for people what they can't do for themselves. That's what I think gets lost in the noise of the current political landscape. And after that, Jeff praised the speedy story by Elliot S. Magan, and then, perhaps for the first time ever, he praised my song selection last episode. Hmm, maybe that's because Jeff recommended Poison Arrow before the episode came out. Hmm, maybe. The Irredeemable Shag honored the comments section with his presence to compliment the Sutherlands and my editing prowess. He also decided that I wouldn't have enough editing of sound clips on this episode, so he added this part. Since you lost some audio to the bad storm, I'm going to assume this next item was simply lost from the show rather than the glaring omission that it is. When you covered Oliver Queen's publication history, you neglected to mention that he was dead for over five years. As in, Green Arrow. Is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. This is a late... Green Arrow. It's a stiff, bereft of life. It rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed it to the perch, it would be pushing up the daisies. It's run down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. This is an X. Green Arrow. <laughs> Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary shared some of his favorite Green Arrow moments. There was a story in World's Finest 258 called One Man Can Cry, in which Green Arrow stops thieves that are stealing elderly people's social security checks. When he is called a hero, Arrow says that while he stopped the robberies, the checks are barely enough to keep these citizens alive. Some are eating dog food because it is all they can afford. When the cop says, what can one man do? Arrow responds, in the form of an Oliver Queen editorial in a newspaper, one man can cry. Also, in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, we see the Justice League debating how they can stop the Floronic Man, who has taken control of Earth's vegetation and is leading a bloody vegetable coup in Louisiana. Arrow angrily snaps an arrow and says something like, We always look after Metropolis and New York and Paris and Atlantis, but who is looking after Homa? 
Lastly, I'm surprised you didn't mention that Green Arrow's origin here stems from a costume party. Isn't that a trope you love, Ryan? It is, and I am mad that we didn't bring it up. Again, I blame the stormy weather that affected our recording session, uh, but Ange is absolutely right. Superheroes getting their costumes for a masquerade or a party was such a common occurrence at the beginning of this series. Good catch. Jimmy McGlinchey wrote in saying, I do agree with Ryan. That's it. That's the only part of the comment I'm going to read. Uh, next. No. Okay. Okay, fine. Jimmy said, Green Arrow is a frustrating character. His seminal run by O'Neill and Adams on modern reading makes Ollie to be this shrill contrarian, getting his way because he is the loudest. In the Gerard Jones Will Jacob book on comic book heroes, they made reference to the fact that Hal always took the worst position in the arguments he and Ollie had, which ultimately led Hal to look pretty stupid, while Ollie just became insufferably right all the time. And the problem with the redesign of Ollie by Neil Adams is that it stretched credibility that no one could see that Ollie Queen and Green Arrow had the exact same facial hair. How he became mayor of Seattle without anyone noticing the similarities is anyone's guess. Hey, it's Seattle. The people are just drinking their coffee, listening to their grunge rock, and praying for the rain to stop. Jimmy goes on to talk about the Speedy segment. He does work better as a member of a team than as a solo character. I remember in Devin Grayson's run on Titans, he became a mentor to Damage. I would also echo J. David Weider's recommendation of Winnix Outsiders. The bromance of Roy and Nightwing in the book is very good, and again, he acted as a good mentor for the other younger members of the team. When he graduated to being Red Arrow and joined the JLA, it looked like things were going well for Roy. Then Cry for Justice happened, and we were left with the image in the follow-up miniseries of a drug-addled Roy attacking criminals with a dead cat. Oh dear. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, My first Green Arrow solo story was a reprint of Jack Kirby's origin story from DC special Blue Ribbon Digest No. 9, the first version to feature Ollie stranded on the island. I loved the Robinson Crusoe meets Robin Hood angle of the origin, and was pretty smitten with the Green Arrow and Speedy team after that issue. I got a lot of mileage out of a kid's bow and arrow set with suction cup tips based on Green Arrow and Speedy reprints from these DC digests. Grell's time on the island here seems to suck the superheroics right out of it. It's just less dramatic than the Kirby version, downplaying Ollie's triumph and making the bad guys a couple of harmless hippies. I understand why he did it. His Green Arrow was far more urban and grounded than any we'd seen before, but I will always prefer that Kirby version. That's understandable. I mean, I totally get where Chris is coming from. And he concludes, Oh, and thanks for the Brian Adams at the end. I sincerely mean that. That is mine and Cindy's song. Came out the summer we started dating. Even if Costner is no Errol Flynn, I still have a soft spot for that movie. Yeah, I love that song. That's why I included it. And come on, you guys. Nothing says Robin Hood more than Kevin Costner, Morgan Freeman, and Christian Slater. Rob Kelly from the Film & Water podcast, among other shows on this network, said, Regarding the cover, I agree something's a little off. I think if modern-day Ollie and Roy were leaping off the roof in an action pose with the Golden Age Green Arrow and Speedy in the background, it would have been more exciting, instead of them just standing there. Yeah, I would like that better, too. Uh, Rob also says, happy to hear Darren mention me regarding the Mego Green Arrow doll. I'm no expert, but yeah, I still say that's the company's finest hour when it came to the world's greatest superheroes line. But what about the Falcon, that great black superhero? 
Darren Sutherland came back to compliment the second half of the episode that he wasn't part of. He mentioned that J. David Weeder is tops with Ruth right now, following his thorough coverage of Speedy, along with a recent episode of Dave's Daredevil podcast that focused on Zorro. You have a fan in Ruth, Dave. And finally, what episode of Secret Origins would be complete without a long, tortuous rant by Diablo Frank? After describing his first exposure to the Emerald Archer and the sizable volume of Green Arrow comics he has read, Frank says, rather bluntly, Oliver Queen is a tool. He's a self-righteous, guilt-mongering, whiny, pushy loudmouth who's a lousy friend and lover, bringing nothing to the super team table. The only reason he's not the absolute worst member of anything approximating the DC Pantheon is that he was clever enough to start hanging out with Hal Jordan to look good by comparison. Aside from the fun Mike W. Barr, Trevor Von Eden mini, and a few issues of Sandy Plunkett's aborted run, I don't particularly like any of the stories. The entirety of the Golden and Silver Age saw him as a gouty Batman ripoff. Green Lantern Green Arrow was hammy, preachy, and overall annoying if you bother to read the words attached to the pretty pictures. The Longbow Hunters is the single most overrated entry in the much-ballyhooed new wave of DC Comics coming out of Crisis, trading the blatant derivation of the Dark Knight to Miller's Daredevil with more sordid elements but without the passion, craft, or background of influences. The ongoing series that followed was a blandly drawn bore and despite early sales success, served to divorce Green Arrow from the mainstream DC Universe in the same way the Titans, the Outsiders, and the Legions suffered during the Baxter years and never recovered from. Frank goes on to catalog more of Green Arrow's sins, not the least of which being he's a blonde white man. But then Frank concludes with my favorite thing he has ever written. Possibly the most grating thing is that in thinking about how I would handle writing Oliver Queen, I realize he would basically be me, at least in the familiar Diablo Frank mode. We're both aggressive, obnoxious, hypercritical, overly opinionated Bernie bros who don't live up to the standards we project or measure up against the truer heroes in the company we keep, ultimately standing as impotent windbags who don't really matter in the grand scheme of the comic book universe. I could live vicariously through his womanizing and his lush facial foliage while smack-talking and acting in accordance to our anthem, Easy to be Hard, from the musical Hair. The Emerald Archer could be my onanistic totem of self-loathing and still land well within his established personality. Frank, you drive me crazy, you make me hate podcasting sometimes, and when we agree on something, that's usually all the more frustrating, but I could kiss you right now, brother. That was beautiful. I want to take that comment and spoon with it in front of a roaring fire. And guys, let that image be the end of this episode. Once again, I want to thank Professor Alan Middleton and the Irredeemable Shag for appearing on this episode of Secret Origins. I want to thank all of my wonderful listeners, and especially those of you who support the show on Facebook, Twitter, or other social media. Please continue to like, share, and retweet the show, and write up an iTunes review if you haven't already. Remember, if you write a review for most of the Fire & Water podcasts, you can win a signed copy of Secret Origins issue 41. The winner of that contest will be announced when I get to that episode in a few weeks. Until then, come back next week for three, count them three, stories about super apes. <laughs> and you people thought the series went downhill after Roy Thomas left. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. 
You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and one more time, for good measure... But I'm dancing in the moonlight It's cut me in its spotlight It's alright Dancing in the moonlight On this long hot summer night Spotlight